Hey everyone, today I'm going to talk about Shireen Razak's The Body is Placeless, Memorializing Colonial Power, which was a presentation I believed turned to a chapter in uh, one of her books. Now before jumping into that, if you're new, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in a somewhat accessible way, uh, at least as best I can, so that, you know, either to help you understand a text, or if you don't have time to read a text but you're curious as to what it's about, this might serve as a pretty good um, replacement to it, even though I can never, in any measure, claim to know more or give you more than can be found in the text itself. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see that my cat is currently over my shoulder, at least part of her. So if you're listening to this in podcast form, you're, you're missing out on that. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to find this in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads. Um, if you're new here, be sure to subscribe because I uh, put up new videos every week. If you're not new here, please like, subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, it really helps me out a lot. If you want to help monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal. If you want to follow me, you can do that at Instagram or at theory underscore and underscore philosophy on Instagram to see mostly pictures of my cats. And yeah, so let's jump into it. This text is obviously very difficult to talk about because of the subject matter. So for that reason, it obviously deserves a content warning, especially for indigenous people that might be listening to this because it deals with uh, police violence against indigenous people. The kind of crux of this essay is the story of Frank Paul, a Mi'kmaq man who was living in Vancouver and who one night, and I'll recount the kind of uh, series of events that uh, Razak gives, one night was, uh, was arrested for public intoxication, was going to be put in the drunk tank and, and was, and then later released. And then later that same day was picked up once again and the police officers at the police station said, almost like, screw this, we're not going to deal with this guy, go and drop him off near the rehab center uh, in like the middle of nowhere, pretty much, in the city, uh, and he'll just let him go to the rehab center. And then his body was found a few hours later, having frozen to death. Now, this situation is all too uh, common, and we see this being replayed over and over and over again, where indigenous bodies are treated as though they are less than human and don't deserve the same kind of treatment as white bodies. So we see this especially replayed in places, uh, in northern places in Canada, northern Quebec, where there's this strategy that's often employed where police will take an indigenous person that might be drunk, drive them out of the city, and then let them come back on their own, which has resulted in the deaths of, of numerous people. And this is played out in northern Manitoba as well, where we've seen these types of very negligible, negligible, it's kind of very violent acts, even though they might appear to be kind of innocuous or, or harmless, I should say. So because of that, it's all too easy to look at the situation of Frank Paul and say, oh, well, that's just an aberration. This isn't something that's part of a greater problem when in fact it very much is part of this problem because it's being replicated over and over and over again. One other example is how in September of this past year, um, and I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, correctly, but a um, 
an Atikmawik, I hope I did pronounce that correctly, woman in uh, northern Quebec. Her name was Joyce Eshquan, I believe that might have been how it's pronounced, uh, filmed herself in a hospital pleading for help, essentially, to have the nurses in the background just almost laughing at her, saying that she uh, is just like a drunk native woman and doesn't actually deserve help. And then she died shortly after that, even though she was filming herself saying like, I am asking for help from these people and they aren't listening to me. Now what often happens, at least in, in certain uh, radio spheres, is, is that these people are just discredited as being not telling the truth. But in the case now where we have like legitimate visual evidence of something like this occurring, and this isn't to say that we need this kind of evidence, but we happen to have it in this case, it was still discredited. Discredited by the premier, who's like the leader for those that aren't, uh, aren't Canadian, uh, the leader of Quebec saying, there, this isn't a big problem, you know, it's just a one-off, no need to take it seriously. When in fact, this is such uh, a deep-rooted issue, especially in Canada. Now, in the case of Frank Paul, the only reprimand that the police officers received were one to two day, that is the two police officers involved, the police officer that was at the police station that said, send him away, uh, and the one that picked him up and, and did the bidding. Each of them only received like one and two day suspensions without pay respectively, which is not acceptable. Like, of course, more serious penalties should have been put in place for such neglect of um, a person that is potentially uh, under arrest because they are under the arrest of someone else. That is, they are their responsibility. The way that Rajak frames this issue is not so much to say that this is an example of like direct violence inflicted upon uh, colonized bodies in the case of indigenous people. That is part of it, and that does get played out quite a bit, or quite often. But what she also wants to draw our, our attention to is are the seemingly more innocuous or harmless ways that colonialism plays itself out to this day, and it's very much alive and well. And so she takes this case of Frank Paul, and all the other cases that I mentioned could also be kind of supplanted here, to say that indigenous bodies are not seen. They are treated with indifference. And so they are incarcerated en masse, disproportionately, institutionalized in other ways disproportionately. And in all of these cases, what is happening is that the problems present within indigenous communities or among the indigenous public in various urban settings and rural settings in Canada is treated as individual problems that can be resolved individually instead of the problem being approached as a historical one with very clear roots, with colonialism, the kinds of neo-colonialisms that followed, like residential schools. Now, for those that aren't familiar, because a lot of you um, are, aren't listening from Canada, a residential school or residential schools were established in Canada to effectively take indigenous children from their families and put them in schools so they could learn Christianity mostly, where they suffered extreme abuse at the hands of the religious leaders of these schools. Now the effects of this are ongoing with the, you know, the most recent school closing in the 90s, very, which is extremely troubling. And many of these people, Frank Paul included, who had gone through these residential schools, had their identities taken from them, had to often resort to 
coping mechanisms like drugs, alcohol, uh, which is, seems is a totally legitimate response to such a traumatic experience. But given the fact that colonialism itself was such a violence committed on the indigenous populations, and then how the children of those people were then put into something like residential schools, attests to a kind of exponential increase of violence inflicted across generations that we see will have effects to go on and on and on. Now, what that means is that the solution to the problem cannot be handled individually. Rather, it has to recognize that there is a trajectory of the people that has a history with the, the origins of colonialism through uh, residential schools. What we see is a trajectory of a, an entire group of people that needs to be addressed immediately because it will only snowball and it will only uh, get worse. And so when we prop up these kind of individual solutions like incarceration or institutionalization, one of the ulterior motives to that is to not only make it an individual problem, right, which often serves the end of just absolving uh, white settlers of, of any responsibility or guilt for the actions committed against uh, these bodies and the actions that are continually repeated again and again. What it also does is it reinforces an idea of placelessness of indigenous people, which speaks to the title of this text. And what Razak means by that is that there is an effort to continually move these people around. And we see that playing out in ways that uh, where indigenous bodies are moved from institution to institution, where they are placed in unstable kind of locations within urban settings, where uh, in the case of like urban development where, uh, and I'm sure in a lot of cities people are noticing this, where uh, liquor stores are being moved further and further from the center of the city to the outskirts in order to move people away. Part of the reason that that's occurring for Razak is to maintain the idea that non-white colonized people are kind of nomadic and that associates them with a kind of primitiveness. And this is done in order not to say anything true about indigenous people in this case, but rather to proffer up the illusion of white superiority. And this happens in a way that we don't see. The, these kinds of actions are, are transparent in very many ways, which is why the work of Razak amongst other uh, post-colonial thinkers is so important in that it reveals these mechanisms or their work reveals these mechanisms at play that we would otherwise not see. So the essay proceeds in five uh, steps or five sections and they are redemption, memorializing, cleansing, abandonment, and death worlds. And each of these sections, I'll go through them one by one, uh, represents a different way that Rajak theorizes the situation that indigenous people and settler colonials or settler colonists are confronting on a day-to-day -day basis. So number one, redemption. Rajak extends an olive branch to the police commissioner uh, at the time of Frank Paul's death who recognized at least that there was some kind of a history to the way that indigenous bodies were oppressed following uh, colonialism, during and following colonialism. But she, she really looks between the lines of what this guy says to criticize how 
um, it always, you know, of course, reduces it to an individual problem and fails to acknowledge basic facts that, like, in the east side of Vancouver's downtown uh, city setting, almost 40% of people there uh, suffering from alcoholism and, and homelessness are, are indigenous. Like 40%, which is a significant portion given the fact that they make up a minority of the total population, which means that they disproportionately make up part of that uh, population. And we, when we are confronted with something like that, it's difficult for, at least in my mind, to look at, look at it and say like, oh, it's people are just choosing this. The, you know, people are just choosing to be poor. People are just choosing to be homeless. People are just choosing to be, um, to suffer from addiction when very clearly so many of these people have gone through such traumatic experiences in their lives due to colonialism that it has to be addressed as a systemic issue. That is, it has to be taken on uh, directly, not by employing the same institutions that treat like white people, in which cases it's not so clear how uh, societal factors play a part. In the case of white people who might experience like discrimination based on class uh, or like or gender, these different setups are are these institutions are more equipped to handle those societal uh, modes of discrimination than they are to handle ones based on race, especially in the case of indigeneity. So of course we can add to this the fact that there's just a general fear on the part of indigenous communities to deal with police to deal with doctors, to deal with social workers who historically have been the ones that were representatives of the state working to disenfranchise these people, to strip them of their culture and their identity and to instill upon them, you know, a Western idea about the world. So this isn't to say that uh, like full scale, you know, social work uh, mobilization in the effort to uh, help indigenous people couldn't be effective but it still doesn't address the fact that there is going to be this disconnect between the people they are trying to treat because of this history and this very strong tension there not to mention the fact that many of these indigenous people have had their own healing practices taken from them both psychological healing practices and physical so it would be like trying to treat someone from I'll just to give a basic example someone from uh, maybe a white person from the Canadian context to be treated with like traditional uh, Chinese medicine for some for something it might work but in part it just seems like too decontextual that it wouldn't necessarily have the same effect so part of the solutions that uh, Razak lays out she takes from uh, a leading researcher by the name of Ardeth Walcom who lays out these these steps or these possible solutions to the problem that the police commissioner and the rest of the police force ignored. So I'm going to read them out here, uh, which might be a little boring, but I'm going to just read to you. Her recommendations are quite specific. Here, here they go. Culturally appropriate services run by the Aboriginal community, a healing center, sustained, targeted, funded, targeted funding, mandated safe space for Aboriginal peoples and general service organizations, a 24-hour drop-in, a wet shelter, an Aboriginal housing first strategy, mental health services, and a monitored process to improve the relationship between Aboriginal peoples and the VPD, the Vancouver Police Department, including the creation of a watchdog position. And these are all like good 
things to do, but they still don't incorporate the kind of uh, indigenous knowledge that needs to be uh, effectively integrated into these institutions. Like, for example, if policing is going to stay the same way, that is, if we don't actually go through with defunding the police or putting in uh, actual effective reform, at, at the very least, incorporating some branch of the police department that deals specifically with indigenous people that is run by indigenous people could be one such way to deal with it. And I don't want to, you know, say like, that's the only way we can do this. Absolutely not. The police is rotten to its core, but in a, as a sort of reformist basic strategy, that could be one way to go. So none of these strategies were taken up, even though the police commissioner at the time was very much willing to it acknowledge this history of colonization. But still, the the kind of impetus was to maintaining the institutions that were already in place, like the police, you know, uh, social work institutions, mental health institutions that are all uh, kind of Eurocentric, white-based ones, in, uh, to deal with this problem or the many problems that they confronted. And what that also kind of sought to do is maintain the image of indigenous people as things, not as persons, like as though these institutions have to just be mobilized to fix the problems of indigeneity, as which is just a kind of replication of moving these people away from their own traditions, their own lives, to make them better citizens for this world that is just going to uh, continually discriminate against them, continually inflict violence and harm against them. And that puts us into section two, memorializing. So here she speaks more and more detail about the idea of uprooting colonized people and how on the day that day and night that Frank Paul died, he was moved around a lot and how this was meant to kind of instill the idea in the uh, colonial white subject that indigenous people are like nomadic and therefore more primitive, whereas the white subjects are stable. And because of their stability, they have the, you know, higher access to like uh, learned ideas of the wonders of the world or the kind of mysteries of the world. And, and furthermore, Frank Paul was institutionalized and arrested like 12 times uh, and even more, even more than that in the months leading up to his death. So each of these times, nothing was actually done to help him. Instead, it was just kind of done to pick him up, get him out of the way, you know, so that he wasn't like an eyesore for the, you know, delicate sensibilities of the white tourists or something, just to keep him away for a little bit until he would then be released without having done anything meaningful. And then the cycle can continue. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, not only meant to keep Paul out of like the public eye for a few hours, but to maintain the idea that these institutions are necessary because they keep doing things, right? They keep arresting Paul, they keep uh, kind of um, sending him to the same mental health uh, institutions. And what that does is really maintain the idea that these institutions are operating because they, you know, they're doing things even though those things aren't producing any results. So that puts us here into part number three, cleansing. Now here she begins to use the work of Ashil Mbembe who is a really interesting thinker, especially in the field of necropolitics, which I haven't done on this channel yet, which is bad, uh, but I'd hope to do it at some point. But what Mbembe does is question Foucault's idea of biopolitics to some extent, to say that it's not, power doesn't work by extending life, by controlling life, by regulating it. It also works by killing certain people. 
So while that might be true of like white European subjects, what is continually occurring is the marked killing, the violence inflicted against uh, brown and black subjects, especially those that are subject to exploitation, capitalist exploitation, with like sweatshop labor or, or something like that. So one of Mbembe's ideas is that the colonized subject or the subaltern subject is someone who is not to be seen. And we could see that with Frank Paul, who is, you know, supposed to be taken out of the spotlight. But they are to be seen just enough so that they can be institutionalized, so that they can be uh, used to proffer up the illusion of white superiority because of the how, how much these people are seen. So their being seen is not associated with a kind of benevolence, as though they're being seen and someone is saying, wow, this is a problem that we must confront. They're being seen to maintain the idea of their superiority, of the people seeing, that is. So they see them and associate them with dirtiness, or with poverty, or with um, licentiousness or idleness, all of these kind of negative things that we've held to be very uh, strong markers of a poor, char poor character for many thousands of years in the kind of Western context. And that puts us here into section four, abandonment. Razak asks, would Paul have been treated differently if he was wearing, not if he was a white person, just if he was wearing a suit and a tie? And it really demands us to reflect on that in how we treat people differently based off of their attire, even though that has absolutely nothing to do with someone's character. And the, you know, the saying that someone in a tie can, suit and tie can get away with murder has a lot of truth to it. If there's a violent crime committed or if there's like a robbery, police don't tend to go to the people dressed well. They tend to look for people, which is just essentially just profiling like uh, black attire in the you know US, the North American context, where people wearing like hoodies or baggy pants or something are gonna be more likely to be stopped by police, not because of the fact that there's any truth to the accusation that is kind of subconsciously had on the part of the police that these people are more apt to crime, but because these markers, these identity markers, are totally arbitrarily associated with crime as opposed to a suit and tie, even though en masse, people wearing suits and ties are the most dangerous people on this planet. They've been at the helm of the most violent atrocities to have occurred over the past century and that continue to occur. And you know, list so many examples, but the 2008 financial crisis, to give it like a recent one, was responsible for innumerable deaths, people losing their homes, all orchestrated by people in suits and ties, but we don't associate suits and ties with that. If we hear about one person stealing a TV that happened to be wearing a hoodie, then we come to associate the hoodie with a kind of uh, evilness. And it's interesting how that works, in that one is demonized, even though the crime was severely less serious than the other. But, so she gives us that. And ultimately, the police were indifferent to Paul's death. They were indifferent to his existence. They were indifferent to him, period. And this is further reduced by the fact that they told his family that he had died in a hit and run, which they just attributed to a mix-up, which is, okay, fair. But we have to really reflect on that in that you didn't really care enough to get the information right. Like, it's just like a whatever thing. You just say whatever, it doesn't matter, figure it out later, which does not look good at all. 
And finally, this puts us here into section five, death worlds. Now this is borrowing more from Ishida Mbembe's idea about necropolitics, and that is how indigenous people, especially in urban settings, occupy what are called death worlds, where their lives are seen as being expendable. Uh, and they exist in a world that, because it is not you know, made for them, made by them, it is a world that continually operates against them. And one, one other uh, example that she gives and that I believe Mbembe thinks about is in the case of like apartheid where black people in South Africa, but also in the case of like Palestinian children and people in, uh, in Gaza, Gaza, who are continually suffering at the hands of um, kind of violent oppositionary forces. And yeah, that pretty well covers this text. I hope I did a fair job at giving you the ins and outs of it, or at the very least, maybe uh, illuminating some of these ideas that you may not have been familiar with or were curious about. Um, and yeah, if you like what I did, you can click on one of these sides for another video um, and like, share, subscribe if you liked what I did. If you didn't like it, dislike the video or whatever you want. Uh, leave a comment if you'd like. I'd like to hear from you. And yeah, catch you next time. Take care.